they create these programs to bring people in from the general public, put them in these programs and get them their start in the writer's room, which is great in theory, but they've been doing this for 30 years. Where did all those people go? And what Jane's power structure analysis does is it actually does the other side. What's the power in the room? What's the power in the community? Then I sneak in there, you know, uh, on, on Graveyard and got some pictures from Playgirl <laughs> and put them up there. Next day, no posters of either kind. Here's a chance for us to tell the stories of, of the barmaids who fought for better working conditions and chasing scabs out of those pubs in Broken Hill. Today, we're speaking with several union members about the products they and their siblings make and why these products are the ideal gifts the labor supporter in your life. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, the Black Work Talk Podcast explores where the Writers Guild goes next to support marginalized workers. Then, find out how Jane McAlevey transformed the labor movement when Judy Ansell interviews organizer and journalist Eleni Shermer on the Heartland Labor Forum. We continue in that vein with our next report from the On the Line podcast, which presents the compelling tale of Diana Kilmurray, British Columbia's bold and fearless truck driver who became immersed in the murky, male-dominated world of the Teamsters Union. Then, we're off to Australia, where the Solidarity Breakfast podcast takes a look at a people's history of alcohol in Australia. Our final segment today is from Solidarity Works, the podcast from the United Steelworkers. And it's just in time to help you buy union when you're holiday shopping. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome to Black Work Talk, the podcast voice of Black workers, leaders, activists, and intellectuals exploring connections between race, capitalism, labor, and culture in the struggle for democratic, progressive governing power. I'm your host, Bianca Cunningham. And I'm your co-host, Jamala Rogers. On this episode, I'll be joined by Writers Guild of America members and co-founders of the Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, Angela Harvey, and Tawal Panyakosit Jr., to discuss what was won in their new contract after nearly five months on strike and more. Joining me today to discuss the contract, the strike, and these shifts in the entertainment industry are WGA member and co-chair of Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, Angela Harvey, who has writing credits on MTV's Teen Wolf, Station 19, American Horror Stories, and more. Angela, thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So excited to get into it. I'm also joined by her WGA colleague and fellow Thai co-chair, Tawal Penyakosit Jr., who has writing credits on Vampire Academy and upcoming Mac series, The Girl on the Bus. Tawal, thanks for joining us as well. I'm really excited to get into it. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. I wonder if we can talk about like what were some of the big wins for you all and the other, and the other members? The one of the biggest ones that I'm excited about is minimum room size. 
as Tual was saying earlier, they're asking fewer and fewer people to share the burden of more and more labor without additional compensation. And so, and in addition to that, I felt like the pipeline was kind of broken. People were having a harder time getting jobs. So this has always been a difficult industry to break into, but they were just really making it next door to impossible and probably would have gotten much worse as time went on. So even though the minimum numbers are small, at least they exist. They protect the existence of the writer's room, which I think is is key. And that one hand in hand with AI is not a writer because we could see the writing on the wall that where they wanted to go was have AI generate content and then hire one or two people to rewrite that. And um, that just was not going to work. The guild would not exist. The guild would crumble if that were the case. Yeah, they're literally trying to replace you (laughs) with AI. Absolutely. Um, So like, yeah, and that makes me think too, is like we had um, some Teamsters on uh, a couple episodes back and we were talking about AI for their industry as well. And so I wonder if you feel like, like the agreement that you reached in the contract could be like a good model for like other sectors to like follow and trying to like fight back against AI taking their jobs. You know, I think only only time will tell. Um, but I agree that it feels like it's a great solid win for writers, for sure. Um, particularly when we're talking about kind of, for folks like us, you know, historically excluded writers, because I do think, you know, one of our, um, our communications chair, Danny Tolley, often talks about how, you know, with AI also comes a regurgitation of all these kind of old stereotypes and things that have been really, truly fucking offensive in the past. And if with a- if AI is working on it, it's pulling from all of that and just regurgitating it. And it's not really going to take us anywhere. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's no secret that like writers rooms and production like have historically been like white AF, right. Um, being led by like white cis men who could afford the education or the, have the Hollywood insider connections um, necessary to get in those rooms. I wonder if you can talk about like, cause I think this is like a little bit, I want like uh, touching what you were talking about, Angela, about like the minimums, like is the current model of entertainment writing doing enough to develop and co- like up and coming black writers and other like non-white or non-wealthy like talents, do you think? Oh, no, nowhere near, nowhere <laughs> near enough. Um, that's partly why I think Tank for Inclusion and Equity exists. The group that Tawal and I, our co-chairs have because there really hasn't been that forward thinking. The industry has always thinks pipeline when they think about historically excluded writers. So they create these programs to bring people in from the general public, put them in these programs and get them their start in the writer's room, which is great in theory, but they've been doing this for 30 years. So it takes about eight years to climb the ranks of a writer. So like, where did all those people go? Well, clearly there's a, cultural issue inside the industry that doesn't allow uh, people to get a foothold and, and to climb the ranks. And so you'll see now a lot of those of us who have managed to stick around, you see those people pulling up others. And so that's where we are in the industry at the moment. My thanks again to Angela Harvey and to Wal Pena Cosset Jr. for joining me. Executive producer for Black Work Talk is Yomar Copeno, and Josh Elstro is our producer. I'm Bianca Cunningham. 
You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. Hi, and this is Judy Ansel. And my guest tonight is Eleni Shermer. She's a writer, educator, and organizer with writings that have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Nation, and Boston Review, and elsewhere. Most recently, she published the article called How... Jane McAlevey transformed the labor movement in the New Yorker, October 27th. I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting article. And welcome to the show, Eleni. You'll have to unmute yourself. Thanks. There. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Oh, great it's to great here. to have you. Thanks. Um, so <clears throat> you start out uh, your article about Jane talking about what her contribution, main contributions, I think, are to the labor movement and her concept of whole working worker organizing. Um, and a couple examples of that kind of organizing that you give in the article have to do with affordable housing and also getting support from the faith community. And I think most workers would ask, what does that have to do with unions? Could you talk about that concept? Yeah, so the whole worker organizing is basically a recognition of the plain truth that people are still people when they leave their job and there's plenty of issues that impact workers uh, on and off the job. If you're paying hundreds of dollars a month for to a private equity company just to live in a crappy one-room apartment uh, and are threatened with eviction, that's... Uh, that's an issue that unions could and should bear. That that affects a worker's quality of life, and the the narrowing of unions' vision to just sort of wages and benefits issues on the shop floor. McAlevey says is is sort of um, surrendering a lot of the power and the vision of unions to address all of the issues that potentially face workers' lives. Okay, so she advises organizers before they even start organizing um, to do what's called a power structure analysis with, uh, in their communities. And it asks who has the power to change an issue. Uh, what I always tell workers is who can give you what you want, uh, what you're aiming for. And it's not always mm -hmm. the, the people who are the obvious targets. Um, right. And then what power workers have to influence those actors. I remember asking her once if she could write a guide to how to do a power structure analysis. I don't think she's ever done that, and I wish, I wish she has the t would have the time to do that. Um, but you want to talk some about the importance of power structure analysis and, and how yeah, she Yeah, it's, it's it. actually it's the, it's the project that she's working on now, but I think one of the things that's really unique and revelatory about Jane's concept of a power structure analysis is that it's, you know, a lot of the sort of traditional s strategy for power structure analysis that most unions or progressive groups do, groups do is to figure out the power that's held by the opponent, who has the power to make the change, um, how can they be influenced, etc. And what Jane's power, strat power structure analysis does is it actually does the other side too. Who, what's the power in the room? What's the power in the community? Who has connections to, you know, influential people? Who is part of a 
soccer league that actually could really turn out a lot of people. So, so she brings in both sides of the equation, not just the the opponents, but also the the organ the the people who are doing the organizing themselves. And I think that's really kind of a profound shift. How'd you meet her, and why do you think she's so important? I read her books. I, I read her books um, probably in 2015 or 2016. I can't remember exactly when No Shortcuts came out. Um, but I read it as a as a grad student and a president of my grad union at, in, at University of Wisconsin Madison, um, and had just you know we had the public sector unions in Wisconsin just got the crap beat out of us. Right, and Act Ten. Yes, exactly. And it was a pretty dark period. And reading that, reading Jane's work was very illuminating because it reminded me how much power we had that we hadn't prob- properly exercised. Oh, so um, she was kind so of an was, antidote to Scott Walker, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Like, oh, if we had been organizing in a different way, maybe we still would have lost, but we maybe could have lost with a little bit stronger footing to be positioned to, to fight another round. I mean, it's it's been a decade. Just the first lawsuit this week just pa- just challenged the, the legality of Act 10, but it's been more than a decade of the lights out for labor in Wisconsin. Yeah, well, keep... Now working in this mill is dirty and dangerous and I'm taking risks anyway. But when I have Welcome to another edition of On the Line, the podcast that brings to light stories from British Columbia's rich labor heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. In this episode of On the Line, we present the compelling tale of Diana Kilmurray, a bold and fearless BC truck driver who became immersed in the murky, male-dominated world of the Teamsters Union, back in the days when women behind the wheel of big trucks were as scarce as generous employers. She took on both sexist attitudes on the job and a union that was then, in the United States, riddled by corruption with a top-down leadership that was closely connected to organized crime and crushed any challenge to the way the union was run. Yet, against all odds, Kilmurray eventually found herself in the highest echelons of North America's largest union. This is her story, much of it in her own words. Well, I was going to Lankara College trying to pick up on my education and uh, happened to be going out with this guy whose father uh, owned a trucking company. So uh, I used to go with him uh, running around in his uh, dump truck so one day, Jim, uh, this is uh, this is the owner of the company. You know, he's swearing up a blue blue streak, um, saying that you know, driver son? driver driver didn't show up again. You know, and I said, well, I could drive that, and you know, this is back in like the early 70s, 71 or 72 or some such. So, uh, you know, I took the truck out for, for a boot and ran up to the dump and, you know, did what was uh, necessary there. 
I mean, you know, it wasn't very long before the single axle guy didn't show up, so I ended up with his truck, and then a little while later, the tandem guy didn't show up. And meanwhile, Trevor, the guy I was going out with, uh, was not impressed. He didn't, didn't want to, um, you know, date a female truck driver. And I said, that's fine. I'll take the truck. See you later. At coffee break, like all the trades have a shack, you know, where you can pull in and have coffee. So I go in there. Uh, actually, I, I, I was staying out of there because I like to read. So, you know, a coffee break, you know, turn off the freaking motor for, for 10 minutes and I'd be reading. So, you know, one of the guys comes over and said, yeah, Kilmer, are you too good to sit with us? And I said, well, no, I didn't want to invade your space, actually. Um, sure, I'll come have a coffee. I don't actually drink coffee, but I'll come and spend coffee with you. So I go in there, and, I, and obviously they had it all, all planned. Because, um, you know, we're not talking Playboy pin -ups. posters. Pin-ups, yes, thank you. You know, we're talking deeply disgusting penthouse stuff, you know, and so I don't say anything. Just, uh, you know, coffee is over. But, you know, then I sneak in there, you know, uh, on, on Graveyard and got some pictures from Playgirl <laughs> and put them up there. Next day, no posters of either kind. You know, it's a matter of how you handle it. Like, uh, you you can't go to, you know, to Rome and insist that they start speaking Spanish, you know? When in Rome, do as the Romans do, but, you know, you got to defend your two square feet. I'm your non-truck driving host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on The Line. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights. We're going to now turn to something that is uh, perhaps a, a little bit less... Uh, disturbing uh, at the moment because it's a history. <laughs> uh, Alex Edling, he's the co-author of uh, Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia. I caught up with Alex to uh, on his busy schedule of launching. This book is really quite fascinating. It's like those grand groundbreaking um, studies that say took a commodity like coal or um or any commodity, and then explored the social and economic realities that are connected to it. But you've also done something else. You've decided to do it from the point of view of the working class and those who, um, and that, of course, then brings in class struggle, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there is that. Um, you know, we called it a people's history. I guess maybe um, we could have called it a radical history. But, I, you know, there's a great tradition of, of that term, people's history. You know, people would know Howard's in his classic book about 
American um, history that went through that that lens. And, you know, there's kind of enough books written about kings and queens and prime ministers and lawyers, you know, so when often when we win something progressive, there'll be a lawyer quick to take credit. But we know very well, listeners to this program, that it is ordinary people and uh, people power uh, organising that get these things. And they're often not the people who have their stories told. So, yeah, it's very much the the framework. And um, the way that I like to explain the idea of people's history is that it's sort of the window that you choose to look out of of a building. So I I imagine a, a pub and um, you could imagine, you know, just where in Melbourne you can, um, you know, take, um, take uh, you know, on the corner of um, of uh, Flinders Street and uh, Swanson Street, Young and Jackson, you know, the this grand pub. If you looked out the nicest window, what do you see? You see beautiful church and you see everything you know well manicured and you see the best of everything but what happens if you choose to look out of a different window you look out the back window into the alleyway and you see the people the workers rolling in the kegs and you you might see in a previous hundred years ago or whatever you might have seen um sex workers plying their trade or SP bookies or homeless people or you see the more uh, a more rounded picture of life, the people that are marginalised, the people who actually do the work. So, yeah, that's our approach to history with this book. Um, I'm sure that, you know, John Elliott and these big um, barons of the brewery industry or people who own a lot of pubs, they often have their stories told and um, here's a chance for us to tell the stories of of the barmaids who fought for better working conditions and were chasing scabs out of those pubs in Broken Hill when we were there. I very much enjoyed telling that story, um, pouring pepper onto the the meals of, of scabs who are breaking their picket line. So, um, yeah, we've uncovered all sorts of things like that. So, Ita... You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, you can hear the full interview that I did with Alex on the podcast. Now available at 3CR is Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Australia. December season is a perfect time to spend with family and friends, eating good food, and showing your loved ones how much you care about them. What better way to express that than with a USW-made holiday?
Members of the USW across the United States and Canada make the highest quality products in their industries. From bullet bourbon distilled in Kentucky and all-clad cookware handcrafted in Pennsylvania, to clothing spun in Portland, Maine at American Roots, and custom foam pillows fabricated and molded in Ontario, Canada. Today, we're speaking with several union members about the products they and their siblings make and why these products are the ideal gifts for the labor supporter in your life. As always, I'll see you on the other side. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome again to Solidarity Works. Premium kitchen knives made by Cutco aren't just guaranteed to last a few years. They're guaranteed to last forever. The company has been at its factory in Olean, New York, for more than 70 years. Last week, I spoke with Bill Baer, who serves as president of Local 5429, about this legendary product, which makes an ideal stocking stuffer. He's entering his 23rd year at the company, which employs around 360 workers. So um, can you tell me about the products you make? I know Cutco is a very popular name, but what exactly are we talking about when we talk about Cutco? Uh, we make the, the highest quality uh, cutlery out of uh, stainless steel. It's a mirror finish on a lot of our blades. I mean, some of them are what we call a rough finish. Um, which are cheese knives and um, that's it for the rough finish. But our polished blades and handles are uh, are just, you can't beat them. I mean, the forever guarantee means forever. You hand them down, your family members, the family members, and they can get them replaced, sharpened at no cost. I didn't know that part. That's really cool. Um, are you able to describe the process of what goes into making these knives? I can give you probably 90% of it. When we get the steel in, and our 448 is made in the U.S. through two different plants. It's called Carpenter and AK Steel. And we start on a heat treat or a blanking process or a laser cut. Um, like the machine I run, I blank blades out of a sheet of steel. And after that, they go into uh, uh, like a degrease, vibrate to get like the burrs and the ask the other stuff that's off, uh, oil and little pieces of metal. Um, and then we go to a heat treat process, which is really cool. The heat treat process goes, um, it goes in an oven, what we call an Abbott, and it's at about 1950 degrees. Uh, it's in there for approximately like an hour and 10 minutes, depending on the length of blade. And then it goes into what we call a deep freeze, which is eight hours of a negative 120. And then after eight hours or so in there, we take it back out and we put it into what we call a temper oven, which is almost like a convention oven. It's uh, set at 400 degrees for eight hours. That's the heat street process. Now we go from there, 
um, it'll go to another polish called High uh, Polish, and that's where it gets its uh, mirror finish. If you ever look at a blade that's, um, when you, as soon as you get it and you look at it, you can see yourself, no problem. Um, then after that, it goes to what we call a grind. Uh, it puts the beginning edge on. And then after that, it goes what we call the handle sides, and they end up putting uh, handles on it, all different kinds, and our handles are riveted in. They're not a fixed, it's a fixed handle right to the knife. And then it goes to a machine we call Miracle Mary, which is a handle polisher, and that machine is just celebrated its 50th year, and it's still going stronger than any robotic that they can bring in. And then after that, it goes what we call uh, honing and high-speed buff. That's where the edge comes from. That edge, uh, is when they comes out of the wash line after they've done everything to it with a hone, it is so sharp it'll cut just paper real fast. Fast as you can move the knife, it's going to cut that paper. Then after that, it goes to our shipping department. And when the orders come in, they box them, and off they go. Until next year, take care, and please stay safe, siblings. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Thank you.